Hello and welcome to the DMs Book Club, a podcast where we read about some Dungeons and Dragons and discuss how we might include it in our role-playing campaigns. Today I have a very, very special guest, uh, someone who I literally met 30 minutes ago, but I feel like we're going to be very, very strong friends. Their name is Craig Mysterioso. Is that, was that it? I got it right? You got it right. Ah! <laughs> Can't see me, uh, listeners, but I'm cheering because we had at least five-minute discussion to make sure I get this right. <laughs> so, Craig, uh, how are you, my friend? Uh, yeah, I'm good. It's a beautiful morning here, and uh, I'm really pleased to be uh, invited uh, to have a little conversation with you about Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games in general. And yeah, this is great. Yeah, just for the listeners at home, we're recording on a Sunday morning, and so we're both feeling very fresh. And it's at least not in the early time as well. It's just just gone ten, so it's all very good. Um, so, Craig, we'll just start off then. What is your RPG experience like? How did you get into role-playing games? Oh my gosh, how much time do you have? Uh, uh, so I'm going to have to date myself here. Um, I'm one of those uh, you know, really annoying 40-somethings that still gets carded at Sainsbury's. So I've been playing the game since I was quite young, and that puts me back into uh, like Stranger Things times. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of a, I guess you could say a contemporary of the Stranger Things kids. Uh, <laughs> I, I started playing role-playing games back in, in, in probably, oh, it must've been like mid eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was seven years old, I think. Wow. I think. It wasn't Dungeons and Dragons that I started out with. Um, it was a role-playing game called Star Frontiers. Now, I don't think you, you've probably never heard of Star Frontiers. I no, think it's I been, I think it's been out of print for about uh, 30 years, but mm-hmm. um, it was Gary Gygax's, the, Gary Gygax, the creator of, of Dungeons and Dragons, tried to get on the Star Wars bandwagon. So he created a <laughs> space opera role-playing game and it was Star oh. Frontiers. It was very, very much in the style of Star Wars, but obviously without the Star Wars. Uh, the copyright. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the kids in my neighborhood came around with a copy of this game, Star Frontiers. And uh, I remember we sat on, the, uh, on my porch one summer afternoon during the school break and we just played this game for hours and I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And I don't think anybody else did either. And we were all, I was probably the youngest. I was like seven. And I think Mm -hmm. the other kids were like 10 or 11, 12, Mm -hmm. but I fell in love with it. And uh, I wanted a copy for myself, but had no idea how to (laughs) find it because it was one of these things that was only available. Like in these hobby shops were really hard to find. Like if you were a seven year old, you had no idea. Yeah. It's it's like a mission itself. Yeah. Yeah, so I tried to create the game myself because I couldn't find it. So oh. I uh, I used to share my bedroom with my my older brother and my only place to go uh, for like escape to be by myself was inside my closet. So I could kind yeah. of like crawl inside my closet and that was my, my safe space. And I just spent, I think like two or three or four days just living in my closet, writing, writing yeah. a game of basically what I thought Star Frontiers was. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody ever wanted to play it. Oh. But, uh, and why would they? It probably would have been horrible. I think, in my seven-year-old mind, everything mm. I'd written was brilliant. But I think if an, eight, if an eight-year-old looked at it, they'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so that happened. And eventually I did find a copy of it. And it was in the mall toy shop, mm-hmm. weirdly enough, buried underneath the, all the other board games where the box had actually been crushed. Uh, and it was on clearance for like, I think it was like three or four dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I actually had three or four dollars. So I was like, oh my God, uh, the gods are shining on me. So I got this thing and I took it home and I, I read it and I was fascinated with it. But I kept seeing at the bottom of the box, it had a purple box with this beautiful Larry Almore cover. But at the bottom of the box, it said, from the creators of Dungeons and Dragons. Mm. And uh, I didn't really know, I'd heard of Dungeons and Dragons, but I didn't really know what it was. Mm. But that eventually led me to discover a dungeon. I had, well, if this Star Frontier stuff is so great, Mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons has to be amazing, right? So then I found Dungeons and Dragons. That was the beginning of a love That's affair. That's amazing. So would you say then in Nova's of your your RPG career, have you been more of a player? Have you been more of a, a games master? Or has it been a mix between the two? Because it sounds like, like you're writing what you thought was the version of games and technically already doing game design, which is pretty yeah. pretty uh, uh, game mastery anyway. So do you prefer being one role to another? Well, the thing is, I always aspired to be a dungeon master when I was a child, but I was never very good at it. It took me many, many, many years to get to the point where I could um, like run a game or a campaign that wasn't completely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that was one of the things, one of the reasons I moved from that Star Frontiers game I talked about earlier to Dungeons and Dragons was because... You know, I still think that science fiction is difficult to game master. Um, I think it, it just requires a lot more preparation, thought, you know, like intellectual engagement than uh, fantasy. I think fantasy is just easier um, to devise. Mm-hmm. And I think what happened with Star Frontiers versus Dungeons and Dragons was it was like, I could not really could not come up with interesting concepts for science fiction. That was like above my eight year old brain, but Dungeons and Dragons at its most basic, you could just play by drawing a maze Mm -hmm. on some grid paper and then writing monsters into the little rooms and then just let the players run around the maze and fight the monsters and find treasure rooms and trap rooms. And that was enough and when you're eight nine ten years old entering into this um this hobby you know that's a lot easier Mm. i think to to kind of get your head around i completely agree with you actually thinking about it because science fiction i love science fiction i'm a massive Mm. fan of it but you're right i think because the rules of say physics or science aren't the same in science fiction like you obviously might not have any gravity you might have you know uh, time travel etc Having to think about that, and then from my experience of uh, game mastering, it's a lot of improvisation. Having to mm-hmm. improvise it, and then you'd hope to justify it, because all good science fiction has a justification somewhere by which people go, that's believable. I think it's very different compared to, like, okay, you're in a fantasy setting. The rules are set, in a sense, but if people are, oh, that doesn't make sense, you just go, magic. And people go, that makes sense. <laughs> like, exactly. It's a very easy justification. So, yeah, I completely agree with you on that. Yeah, it, it, and it's more than that, too, because, like, Everybody has a shared language of for fantasy and mythology and fairy tales and things like that, which we've been exposed to since we were tiny little children. Mm-hmm. Whereas science fiction, you know, if you're creating a science fiction universe, you have to think about your own alien races. You have to think about what, what do the spaceships look like? How do they work? What kind of planets are there? What kinds of you know, interstellar encounters do you have? There's just so much range of issue. And then, and even if you play a more sort of 
less sort of broad space opera science fiction, but more of like a cyberpunk thing, you really have to know about how the world works. You need to know how civilizations work and, and communities work. And as a kid, you, you don't have that adult knowledge. Um, so it's very difficult. I think I've always considered it very difficult and I have great respect for game masters who run science fiction. I think it's a really, um, it's a great challenge. I love science fiction, obviously. Mm, and I love fantasy, but uh, my when, it, when it comes to running them, you're like for fantasy running games. Fantasy, I find easier, and uh, I can improvise it better. What topic have you brought to us today? What is our what is our topic of choice? Uh, so you know, we talked a little bit about what books we could bring to the table, uh, mm-hmm. but one the one that I kind of fell on, I really wanted to talk about this uh, game called uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG, or mm-hmm. also known as DCC RPG, which is put out by Goodman Games. It's not that new; it's been around since I, I, the copyright says 2012, but I feel like it maybe came out a year or two after that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I said, it's coming from a small independent publisher called Goodman Games, and they're both best known for putting out sort of fifth edition and third edition uh, modules with a heavy emphasis on dungeon crawls. But they put out this system where they just wanted to play with some of the bigger ideas, the kind of uh, things that that they liked uh, from the old school games that they felt a little bit of that was lost to time, but also just to try some new things and and, mm-hmm. and experiment with uh, the game because they mm-hmm. I think they felt that the game had gone a bit stale. Uh, and so that's where this Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG thing I think came from. And I've always wanted to talk about it because I think it doesn't get enough attention. And I think there's a lot of things in it that the fifth edition dungeon master could maybe uh, pick and choose from I mean, not necessarily saying you need to play the system itself but but maybe there's some ideas here that you can take away yeah. just to spice up your game definitely and we were talking off recording just now about this idea of obviously reading or playing other rpgs other to D&D just to become a better player or a better DM because you're right I think a lot of times if you you solely stick to one game that's all you ever know that is sort of your world your bubble but if you look at other games such as DCC you'll be like that's a really cool idea they've got this really cool mechanic can I put it into my gaming no matter what the system is so I think mm-hmm. absolutely and I when you talked about it what you very kindly actually gifted me uh, <laughs> the full rule set which I must say the Amazon man when he passed it to me was like what are you buying? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's very heavy. It's a very thick book. So we are, so from my point of view, we are talking from the quick start rules, but it is a very beautiful book, an incredibly beautiful uh, line illustrations as well. Very, so again, of that sort of classic sort of like illustrations from, it's for me, from the sort of the 80s and 90s of like when you would open up like a, a magazine or something like that of dungeon crawling and adventures and stuff. So yeah, very excited to talk about this because it's, it's something that I've up until recently not really been a part of i had like the sort of the free uh quick start stuff from i think it was a free rpg day which i managed to get and then never looked at it so yeah i'm really fascinated to, to see where we go with this 
I mean, just I, I, I sent you a copy of it in part because, you know, I'm trying to do my part to promote this and, and get more people excited about it. And maybe uh, maybe one day you'll give it a go, uh, maybe even with me. Who yes, knows? Absolutely. Um, but it is a beautiful uh, book. Um, I believe I sent you the, uh, the foil again, cover one. Again, our listeners can't see it at home, but yeah, we're both, we've both got our own copies in. It's like, wow. And it, yeah, it, it looks, I can imagine this being on the bookshelf and people going, what is that compared to other things? And <laughs> just being out and just, yeah, and just having a flick through is just incredible. The more common cover has kind of a, uh, has this uh, warrior who looks a little bit like a hippie from the 60s. I think yes. he's got bell bottoms on and he's, <laughs> you know, entering into a, a cave with a f- mouth and a face on it. Face and, on it, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the more common one, but it kind of goes in with the, uh, throwback to the 70s psychedelia it's a bit metal it's a bit uh you know prog rock i guess but the artwork is beautiful in in the book i I, i'm gonna say you know i think it's important to say up front this is dm's uh book club so i'm going to just say that it's not literary. You don't want to yeah. read this. You don't want to read this book. It's not Salinger. You're not going to uh, be wowed by the qualities of of the authorial no. uh, the authorial language or anything like that. No, it's it's definitely um, it's definitely not written player friendly. It's definitely for this no. is for you, the game master. Here are the stuff you need. Go go go! And actually, I appreciate that you sort of um, utilitarian aspect to it because sometimes you're looking through some books and you're like, "This is great. I love you know a star for creative writing." But where is the mechanic? Where is the stuff which is what it does very well? So I completely agree with you on that. Yeah, it is. It's a mechanical book, but there's such interesting stuff. Most of the artists in it are sort of classic first and second edition artists like uh, i don't know if you're familiar with them but i'm sure some of your listeners will know who errol otis is or um J- jim holloway uh jeff easley these guys who who drew the books during the first edition and the second mm-hmm. edition of dungeons and dragons and they kind of were brought back to work on this uh, on this book and to contribute some artwork mm-hmm. um and it's clear that the authors of the book great admirers of their works yes. and have, have, have really featured the artwork prominently mm-hmm. throughout. You could get lost in this book. Yeah. Yes. You, you could definitely, you know, where do you begin? Yes. Sometimes the question on this book, but it's just full of little great little ideas. Mm-hmm. We'll talk a little bit more about that. That's a great sort of segue, actually, Craig. When we're looking at this, where would you say we start? Like, what what is the essential sort of core bit of DCC, if there is a core bit? Because I appreciate it. Like you said, it's certainly the full rules, there's so much to it. But if you had to narrow it down, like, what would it be? So I think the thing with Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG is that um, they wanted to create a world that's unstable, that's chaotic, that's strange, and... Um, mysterious and they're bringing the mystery back to magic i think gosh if if there was one thing in particular in dungeon crawl classics which i can cannot stress more that i love and that i think more people should take an interest in is the way the spells and the magic works mm-hmm. in this game we're all familiar with dungeons and dragons fifth edition and if there's one thing about fifth edition which you know take it or leave it it's that the designers intentionally built it around 
a magic infused world where literally magic is everywhere and it's commonplace it's ordinary Mm -hmm. people are using magic to mop the floors and the tavern and so on building buildings with levitating rocks and there's going to be all this stuff going on in in dungeons and dragons and everybody has magic and all the character classes have magic and Mm -hmm. and magic is is freely available to you as a magic initiate background or whatever Mm -hmm. literally magic has to be everywhere ecologically to play the game, there has to be magic everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that kind of makes magic less magical, mm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. What Dungeon Crawl Classics does is it makes magic dangerous. Yes. <laughs> it makes magic unknowable. It makes magic incredibly powerful, but also destructive. Mm-hmm. So when you cast a spell in Dungeon Crawl Classics, you have to refer to a random table to find out what your spell does. And, you know, if you critical fail in Dungeon Crawl Classics, your spell will backfire in the most bizarre and mysterious ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you roll high, your spell could be way more successful than you want it to be. Mm -hmm. But it also has really interesting um, flavor to the magic. So when you cast a spell the way that it manifests can be different every time. Mm. So let me just give you an example. There's a spell, uh, Spider Climb. We know Spider Climb. Everybody knows Spider Climb. It's a classic Dungeons and Dragons spell. Mm -hmm. But if you were to look up the Spider Climb in Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG book, which is on page 156, if you're curious, um, there's a few rules for it. When it manifests, so when you cast the spell, you have to roll a D4, okay? Mm -hmm. And then depending on your roll, the effect is different. So on a roll of one, you actually grow spider legs out your back, you know? (laughs) So you have these giant spider legs coming out of your back. That's interesting, isn't it? Doesn't that make combat more exciting? Doesn't that make casting spells more exciting? Mm. If you roll a two, your your caster's hands and feet become covered with a sticky ooze. And that's how you climb things. If you roll a, a three... Your fingers and toes glow with a strange orange light. <laughs> and if you roll four, the caster grows six additional eyes, you know, oh. eyes, eyes around your eyes like a spider. Mm. But that's only the beginning because that's the manifestation. That's not the actual power of the spell. No. The actual power of the spell is then determined by um, your spell checks roll. So, so unlike D&D where, you know, you cast a spell and it works. Here you have to cast a spell, like a skill check. Mm -hmm. And um, depending on how high or low you roll, you get a different effect. Obviously, if you fail the skill check, nothing happens. The spell fails. If you roll one, you can have a misfire, which can cause all kinds of horrible things like turn you into a baby spider and then somebody can step on you. (laughs) Um, Or if you roll really high and you have your bonuses and you get over 30, then for the duration of one hour per caster level, the caster and all allies, all allies mm-hmm. within 10 feet gain the additional climbing ability of a spider, even when using gloves and shoes, et cetera, et cetera. It's just that thing of like, 
the powers of these spells are so unpredictable and there's so many different ways that a spell can manifest itself. Mm. It's really fascinating. For me, yeah, reading is through, and like, as you sort of pointed out to all the spells have a a skill check from the player, the monsters don't get to dodge or anything like that, but it's this idea that, yeah, magic is unpredictable. And I think there's a little section in the quick start guide saying, you don't use magic for lighting a torch. Use an actual torch and don't be idiots about this. And yeah, I love that idea that that you can't really prepare for it. So like in combat, you might be on your last legs, people are running away. You go, oh, I've got this one spell. I don't know if it will work. And I just love that, that you're almost like a last resort using mm-hmm. these kinds of magic because you just don't know. Like, again, you can possibly predict with that, oh, well, these modifiers, we can at least get over like a 10 or something like that. So you might have a thing, okay, these ones won't be doing it unless you get a natural one, which you said is sort of like the worst thing because obviously you get failure, you get this idea of misfiring where it, that goes back on you or the, the gods, I believe in the cleric class, um, they look unfavorably on you. So this idea that you, if you constantly get natural ones, it's like, it was a natural failing range, I think it's called, where this idea that you, the more you fail, the bigger the, the role is. So you might fail on a one, two or three, four, five, you know, and if you keep failing, it's just going worse and worse, worse, this idea of sort of bad luck following you everywhere and just being you know, the worst cleric for a whole day because your, your spells are just going wrong, wrong, wrong. So that I think that's actually quite interesting because, yeah, I think with you think about D&D, of course, you're like, well, magic is commonplace. Like you said any person has access to it depending on the campaign. But this idea of like you can access it if you want and giving that sort of thing, if you're doing to do this, you know, you've got to be ready for the consequences. And I, I just like that idea of not being able to predict what the spell can do. I think that's really interesting. And, and like like you sort of alluded to, there's all, in all of these spells, it's almost like two pages with like you said, like how it manifests, uh, the misfires and corruption stuff. And then what each spell does. And I actually like that as a, a flavor thing. Sometimes, you know, in the moment as a, as a GM or as a player, you're like, ah, oh, it, it just goes off. I just cast fireball. It's like, well, how does it look mm. like? How does it? And this gives you so many cool examples about, like you said, with the, cl- the spider climb. Because in my head, it's like, oh, you just walk up like almost like a pippy long stocking up a wall. But actually, the idea, it could be legs. You could just have goo like Spider-Man. And I just quite like that. Giving It gives these options to be like, this is what it looks like this time. Because I think it said, well, like in the wizards class, you actually don't know what spells you're going to get. Again, it's very random. You just roll it and then work it out from there, which I, I just love that. This idea of magic is so random, dangerous, and you should totally use it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And to me, it kind of helps define the whole world because, mm. you know, you think because corruptions happen because a wizard over time becomes more and more mutated by all of the failed spells that he casts over the course of his his uh, wizarding career. They might start growing tentacles or he might have extra eyes or who knows what. The idea with magic is you're ripping holes in the fabric and order of our universe. You're, you're, you're fundamentally breaking the laws of nature mm-hmm. when you cast spells. So that has consequence. But that also explains the game world. You know, you don't need a big, long history to explain why things are because it's clear that people are messing with powers beyond their comprehension Mm -hmm. and causing all kinds of issues. So 
that's enough to say, why is there a monster that's eating the villagers? Well, it's probably because somebody was tampering with powers that he couldn't control, right? Mm -hmm. And it Mm -hmm. infuses the whole campaign setting. And I just really, I really dig that. And I know there's different approaches to role-playing games and different people want different things from their role-playing games. And, and maybe the, the this kind of darkness of this uh, concept and, and the magic is, is dangerous and mm-hmm. characters are probably doomed for, you know, pursuing the very thing that they're meant to be pursuing. Mm-hmm. And, and I know for, for a lot of D and D players, they just want the heroism. They just want mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, they're, they're, can't handle the idea of this sort of character death, that sort of thing. But I just, I just really like it. I just yeah. think it's good. You know what? There's something about like there was another game um, I've not played. Again, I've read about it. We interviewed the game designer for it for What Am I Rolling a couple of years ago. Um, Best Left Buried, which basically it's it was a bit like um, everyone is part of a guild as and you send parties into the dungeon to excavate it, a bit like miners. Mm-hmm. But it's like this in a sense of like this is the grim, dark reality of being an adventurer it's not glorious you do this and yeah looking at the quick start guide mm-hmm. you start off at level zero uh, as uneducated unskilled peasants which i again yeah. I, was, I thought that was hilarious in the book because this idea of like we're going to do this adventure regardless of what it is and it actually encourages you in the book to like create four characters and we'll go on to the character creation in a second but this idea like you've got to don't be attached to them they could die easily because of the way they've been rolled up. But just to quickly go back to the, the magic stuff, because um, I was the thing that made me really interested in this is, yeah, like you said, it's unstable, it's unknowable. A bit like that science fiction element we are sort of talking about before. But this idea of spell burn, if your character really wants to guarantee that a spell to work, you can sort of make a deal with the, the GM, I believe, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but this idea of having almost like a, a hard bargain or a tough choice. So the example it gives in the uh, the quick start guide, this idea of a, a wizard life or death situation means, needs to make sure that their spell goes off. They'll call upon an archdemon who they've had past dealings with and offering to share life force. So like seven points or something to give you a seven plus to your next spell check. Again, I like that idea that you're, 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 again, that idea of corruption, that you're just doing anything you can to save yourself in the short term, but had this long-term consequence, this idea of spell burning and adding your ability points and, and having that hard bargain saying, do you want to do this? You need to give me this. Again, I love that. Again, it feels very um, not knowing the consequences or not knowing the full picture. It feels very Cthulhu in a way as well. Mm-hmm. I really, really enjoyed that. Yeah, there's definitely a heavy Cthulhu influence on the design of this game. And I completely agree with you. I love the idea of Spellburn. I've used it in in my Dungeons and Dragons games. That idea of the sacrifice uh, for more power. Um, there's an attribute in this game called luck, which um, it's one of your your standard attributes, along with uh, strength, etc., agility, um, intelligence. But it's the one that can go down. So you can burn luck to get uh, re rolls. But of course. Um, the lower your luck gets, the worse things are for you mm-hmm. because there's negative and negative modifiers and, and bonus modifiers, just like any of the other ability scores. So as, as luck gets down, you start to get negatives on things. Yeah. And, and the idea that you can, you know, cut off a pound of flesh for some extra, for some extra powers is really cool. There's also for clerics. And I love this about Dungeon Crawl Classics as well. And I think it needs to go into D&D. 
you mentioned earlier, I think if they critical fumble on their uh, spell casting role, they basically upset their God. Mm -hmm. And why did they upset their God? Well, you can kind of work that out in in your role play, but it might just be the unknowable, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, because gods are uh, fickle. Mm -hmm. So you've earned uh, some negative ire from your God and your critical then goes to from one to two. And then, you know, the second time that you uh, anger your God, it goes from your critical gets up to three and so on until the point where, uh, you know, at some point you have to give a sacrifice to your God Mm -hmm. uh, to win its favor back. And that's so important. And, and it really drives home the idea that you are working on behalf of a deity. And I feel like that doesn't happen enough in Dungeons and Dragons where we remind clerics, where we remind priests, you know, you have to do what your God tells you to do, or it's going to take away your powers. You're suddenly going to find that you can't heal anybody anymore. You're not going to be able to turn the undead because you have, you have upset your gods. I tried to do that once in my, uh, uh, Curse of Strahd campaign. Um, I was very, I, I wouldn't say I was disappointed in my uh, player, but um, the player made a decision, which I thought was very much against what the gods would, mm-hmm. would like. And so I said, actually, you try to cast a spell and it doesn't work. Uh, I got into trouble for that, right? <laughs> uh, I was being a bad DM for doing that. So I wish that the game had more of that in its rule, mm-hmm. uh, in its rule system, so that to justify my actions as a dungeon master, I wasn't mm-hmm. just being a jerk. But no. you know, they, they assassinated somebody, and he was a good, a good cleric. And I such thought, come on, now yeah. you, you can't just kill somebody and yeah. expect not to be punished for that. Yeah, in DCC, it makes very clear about the so the main two classes that have spells. You've got clerics and wizards And yeah, it makes it very clear The distinction of where their magic comes from That wizards Mm -hmm. will just take and harness it And then, yeah, it's that sort of wizard, warlock idea Witches it describes as well This idea of like we're harnessing what we can And we're learning about the unknowable And hence that idea of corruption Whereas clerics are, you know, being almost um, like figureheads For this deity, you know, going out doing What the deity's agenda is and stuff like that So of course if you don't fall into line with that yeah, you're going to get some sort of uh, comeuppance about it. It's very much like, um, I don't know if you've read at all, there's this Mythic Odysseys of Theros, which is a source book that's come out in d d in the last couple of years. And it's all Greek-inspired mythology, mm-hmm. but it has this whole thing about piety. The gods and, and religion is such a big part of that society. It's more likely you will have a god that will, you would want to be advancing that agenda of. And you have a piety score. And the more piety you get, the more benefits you get from it as well. Obviously, if you don't do it, the less you get and stuff like that but as as far as i remember there's no real negative stuff in that but you it does encourage you to be like well maybe you know if they lose out favor of the gods then maybe something does happen maybe a role play thing but i think with this this idea of like a mechanical thing it's right. not working i think that's that's a really interesting thing to do and i, I think it's i think it'd be it makes sense story-wise if you've done something bad and you know it's not what your character would do or if it's like outside of things it makes sense to be like hey remember you did this at the beginning well now is this coming back to bite you? And I love that idea of storytelling and consequence and it having an actual impact in the game. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting because then it's like, you know, how do you get over this obstacle? How do you give a recompense for it? So, yeah, all about that, I think. I think it's a good idea. And again, it's that thing as well, that gods are unknowable and uh, 
we think we know what they want, but sometimes we don't. So you could have the most perfect cleric behaving totally in line with all of its rules and still rolls a one. And the player says, but, but how's that possible? Why would the gods be disapproving of me? I've been perfect, but then, you know, religion sometimes does that. I mean, (laughs) we're not going to get into a Bible discussion, but the story of Job where, uh, Mm. where where God punishes his greatest um, uh, disciple. (laughs) So, you know, gods are like that. Sometimes they do things for their own and, and, I think, and I think making that clear in, I mean, to me, as reading this sort of document, I was like, this comes very clear off in the setting. But again, maybe I may be double checking your place saying, hey, the gods are definitely fickle in this, just FYI. And I think just making sure they are aware of that before you start playing mm-hmm. a game of DCC. But I did want to circle back to you talking about fumbles as before. This mm-hmm. idea, obviously, if you roll a natural one, that is a fumble. And and I will say this for DCC, there are lots of tables. I mean, Wizards of the Coast, yes. they love their tables, but uh, DCC, I think I've have one up them in that. And but all the tables are they they three up them. So there are tables within tables within tables here. And it's almost like they're having a laugh sometimes. But but I think all all the tables are important. Whereas I think in yeah. some of the most recent editions of DD, obviously it they in that one it's always like here's a flavor thing you could do as an optional thing to give you mm. ideas. Whereas stuff like in the spell stuff that we were saying before like roll a D4, here's four options to see how your spell looks like and stuff like that. I mean you don't have to do that. But I like the fact that all the tables in this book are related to a mechanic and it explains like this goes go to this table, it'll explain this. And I can imagine having this book out and being okay to read from it because you're not expected to learn all of this stuff in yeah. like you'll have notepads but i just want to say with the fumble stuff what's interesting is that as with most uh, rpg systems so that uses a d20 as their main mechanic obviously the higher you roll the more chances for success however on this one on the fumble table i think it's what you roll uh, the roll is modified by the reverse of the character's luck so mm-hmm. this idea that lower is better on the fumbles table and you're looking at it and like the first one is like you miss wildly, but miraculously, no other damage is caused. And you're like, if mm-hmm. that's if that's just a miss, you go down, you go, oh no, <laughs> it gets worse and worse and worse as a result. And I I think that's really interesting because again, I really struggle sometimes when there's a, like a natural one. I go, uh, you miss and you drop your sword, you know. Whereas this, I'm like, oh, this is a bit more interesting, a bit more in depth that you could add consequences to spells going wrong or, or attacks going wrong so i think it's just really interested like there's one that just come up here like um your weapon becomes entangled in your armor you must spend the next round untangling them in addition your armor bonus is reduced by one until you spend 10 minutes refitting the tangled buckles and straps so again it's like again because you're inept i think that's yeah. what's come come across with all this is that you are inept characters because you are <laughs> literally trying to get through a dungeon at level zero like and that's okay and i think just i just like that as a result like you're not heroes you are basically surviving <laughs> such rich storytelling that can come from these random tables some people think oh i don't like randomness in my game i want everything to be you know uh sort of pre-planned but this stuff has so much flavor and it's capable of creating so much more interesting storytelling opportunities, thing, real stories that you're going to want to share with your friends um, you know, later on. Remember that time that this happened or that happened. And I think, you know, I, I love a good random table. I think uh, random encounters are underrated. Uh, random events are underrated. But um, I think in particular, as you said, the tables in this are both, you know, 
mechanical and also very uh, richly flavored. And I think that's really good. Another really nice segue into that. What I think is the heart of this is that when you were looking at character creation, it says at the top, as you might have guessed in DCC, it's completely randomized. Everything mm-hmm. you do is this almost going against the sort of the norm, this sort of anarchistic approach to creating stuff. And it was it says like you need to make at least four characters. You're going to roll for everything. If you pick anything, like, oh, I want this, I want this, it doesn't work in the character creation. You have to roll for everything. You know, it's a very simple, straightforward character creation as well, I think, like compared to some other ones. And I think what's nice is that you then come up with all these random types of characters and some you know you're like this character rolled incredibly low on all these things that's not going to survive the dungeon but it's like this idea of like you're not min maxing that's the thing it said it said it's, no. it's, this is the whole point is so it's completely random and you just have to do do your best with what you've got and i think that's so empowering when we're now in a, a D age which i enjoy i will say this D age of like you can do whatever you want. You can be an owl person. You could do this. You can do this. And people will pick stuff. And that's the character they want to do. That's what they want to play. Mm-hmm. But I, there is a joy where it's like, here's what you've got. And you go, bloody hell, how am I going to do with this? Because then I think with that, you actually learn how to deal with different characters who are, you know, very different. Like you could have a wizard or a cleric who have a really low personality uh, skill score. So then they're going to cast less spells or you're going to have um, an elf or a dwarf or a halfling that have different bits and pieces. Like certainly for me, again, we've not really explained this, but there is no such thing as um, as race and class. It's just one. So humans get some classes. So if you're a human, you could be a cleric, warrior, wizard, and a thief. And then the others are just elf, dwarf, and halfling. And mm-hmm. that's it. And I'm like, oh, that's quite interesting. And then looking at them in, in sort of a bit more detail, stuff like the elves have uh, an aversion to have a weakness to iron. And like, mm-hmm. how do you deal with that and stuff? That I found really interesting. Like they're all very different and you just have mm-hmm. to, and I'm sure in the, in the full book as well, there's, I'm sure there's more weaknesses or more, more, a bit more filler yeah. to it as well. But I just, yeah, to roll that randomly go, okay, you have this and you go, oh shit, I don't know what to do with this, but I, yeah. I like that. It's very interesting, very different. You hit on a few things there that I'd love to talk about. Um, the So, I mean, let's be honest, the, the racist class thing is is always going to be controversial. Yes. Um, a lot of players will just hate that idea and probably is the hardest sell I agree. for, dunge- for a DCC RPG. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost wish they had included rules for an alternative to that. Mm-hmm. But that was harking back to old D&D because that's what the original Dungeons and Dragons uh, system back in the Mm -hmm. 80s that I started playing. That's how it worked. So Mm -hmm. halflings were hobbits and they were very specifically kind of like a cross between uh, a fighter and a thief. And the dwarf was, the dwarf was just a, a fighter who was good with underground stuff and the elf was kind of a cross between the magic user and the fighter and so they've kind of brought that back in this and they keep referring to something called appendix n i'm sure you've seen the references to appendix Mm. n i don't know if that means anything nothing at all (laughs) okay so appendix n appears in the original uh first edition ad and d dungeon masters guide okay so there were Obviously, lots of appendices in that book. But N was a Gary Gygax's list of his favorite fantasy books. Oh, um, okay. So he had grown up reading lots of fantasy and myths and things. This was very much an inspiration to him when he was developing Dungeons and Dragons. And it's not 
I mean, it's not just Lord of the Rings, you know. Uh, he had real fascination with, uh, obviously, Conan, but he also had a fascination with um, a fantasy writer named Paul Anderson. And uh, I believe Paul Anderson was responsible for the uh, the alignment system. I think he actually oh, spells out where you think, oh, lawful good, neutral good, all that mm. kind of thing. That's all based on a novel by Paul Henderson. I've never read it personally. It's all in there, apparently. It must be a really boring read to read about (laughs) that in a novel. I don't know. Uh, But Paul also wrote some stories about elves, and that's where the idea of the the silver, uh, the iron allergy Mm -hmm. that elves have, it comes from his books. It also comes, I I think it might even come from uh, Norse mythology as well, like mm. going back even further. But to get back to my original point, the appendix N just has this list of fame, uh, old, often forgotten pulp fantasy that was a big influence on on early, early D and D, and obviously on a on the creation of DCC RPG. Yeah, so that's what that's all about. But um, about character creation, yeah, um, it's interesting as well because what they encourage you to do. So so they have this concept called the funnel adventure. Hmm. And the funnel adventure, everyone plays a zero level character. Um, so you are not a warrior or a cleric or a wizard or a thief or a dwarf. Well, you are, you could be a dwarf or an elf or a halfling, but you basically roll four characters, maybe even more, depending on how many players you have. Hmm. Um, so you have a bunch of characters and they all get together uh, and they're most basic characters. Um, they only have a few, st- they have their their ability scores and a few other things. They have uh, occupations. So you might be a farmer or a, a wheelwright or what have you. And that hmm. kind of defines what your skills are. Uh, it also gives you a weapon. But usually that weapon is something like a pitchfork or yes. like a table leg <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. And and the idea is you're a bunch of villagers, usually. The, the standard sort of setup is you're a bunch of villagers on the frontier somewhere and something bad is happening. And you guys get your pitchforks and your torches and your uh, your sticks and you go to deal with the evil threat that's uh, attacking your village. Mm-hmm. And most of you die. Um, and that's the character creation process. I'm using air, uh, air, quotes. <laughs> uh, air quotes as I say that because, because the characters get whittled down until mm-hmm. only uh, the best ones survive. However, in my experience, the worst ones tend to survive. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because what happens is you get your good characters. You think, oh, this this one's a this one's a squire, so he's got a sword and and uh, he's got some nice ability scores. He's he's going to be a, a survivor, right? Mm-hmm. And the guy who's a gong farmer. I don't know if you know what a gong farmer is. That is literally somebody who shovels poo. Oh, I, I uh, did clean, my head. Cleans, I was like, yeah, but then I was like. I, I hope it's not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, they they make the fertilizer. Um, you think the gong farmer? He's not. He's got a shovel. He's uh, he's got poor ability scores. He's not going to make it, right? Well, what happens is you always end up sending your squire in. Of course you do. Yeah, to fight. <laughs> and then he dies. And the gong farmer, who you haven't been playing, you've just kind of let him on be on the periphery of all the scenarios. He ends up living because you haven't got him right up into the combat. 
you know? Mm -hmm. So then you end up with the gong farmer with the poor ability scores, making it to level one. (laughs) That's so funny. I I hadn't actually considered that like that, almost like ideal versus reality. It's like, yeah, of course you'd send the best one. Oh no, they're dead. Fuck. Uh, I'll send the second (laughs) best one. Oh no, they're dead. Fuck. Because yeah, as as I was talking to you before, they had this, um, the marching order, uh, which it describes again. It, it assumes that you are around a physical table, but this idea you have the four, your four or however many more sheets, and the the sheet closest to the the table is going first as a marching mm. order. So as if you're going down like a, a a maze or something like that. That's the order they're going in, and I like that yeah. idea. That you're like, oh yeah, the shit shoveler is at the back. <laughs> they, <laughs> they'll be fine, and then it's like, oh, <laughs> you know, it just sort of um weaves through the rest of your party. Go well, <laughs> time to escape. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's good. Uh, the funnel adventures can be great fun mm-hmm. um, in part because you don't have any expectations and yeah. you just get to see what happens. Um, yeah. To be honest, most of the games of Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG that I've played have been these zero level adventures kind of as one offs. And they've been they've been wonderful. Going back to the idea of race, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Again, it is randomly determined, like you, you, you roll a die at the beginning and, and you might roll that you're an elf or a dwarf or a, a halfling. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting because I always thought, you know, like we can't choose our Who parents, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, I, I kind of like that idea. But um, obviously, if you do roll an elf, you, you have certain, you, you have a lot of advantages over the other players at, at zero level. But at the same time, it maintains the idea that elves and dwarves and and halflings are rare in the world, Mm. you know, and that, again, appeals to the idea of the mystery of the fantasy world Mm. that you've created, which I think is so good and so important. I've had D&D groups where every single character was a demi-race or a Mm. a non-human race. And so... It, it starts to kind of break from what's meant to be the established world where, where mm. humans are, are, are the dominant race and the other races are kind of existing on the fringes of, mm. of human civilization. And it kind of, you know, and that becomes kind of weird, especially in something like, you know, I talked about my Curse of Strahd campaign from mm. a few years ago. Mm-hmm. The, the guy playing the dragonborn is the only dragonborn in that whole world. Yeah. And then how are, how are you supposed to portray horror? Because Ravenloft, uh, Curse of Strahd is all about horror. Mm-hmm. You know, you're supposed to draw the idea that everything is scary. But like the party is a bunch of elves and, and half dragons. Mm-hmm. They're the scariest thing in that yeah. world. Let's be honest, yeah. right? People, people so, are fri- frightened of them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. So it just, it kind of undermines the mystery Mm. of of the world do you know what i mean yeah no because i i've run i've run a little bit of strad recently um Uh and i sort of said to them as like you know the the only stipulation i had was like no creatures that can fly just because again it sort of breaks the game in a way because obviously when you're level one you can just fly away it's but like oh that's Mm -hmm. a shame you know but i think i made it very clear so obviously this is a bubble domain of dread and it, and I said to them, I described it like majority of these folks are humanoids or humans, and they've been under a lot of a lot of pressure, but they've also been oppressed. And mm-hmm. so, seeing these new creatures, if you you know if you're choosing to be a class, I won't stop you, but 
you're going to get a sense of it and they might not be as helpful to you. And I said, I tried to do it from the point of view. It's like, well, if we're seen as to be helping these creatures, we don't know, we don't know anything about them. We don't know who they are. Has Strahd sent them? You know, all that sort of thing. So they're going to keep abundantly clear rather than, you know, again, just make trying to portray it like that. And I think what's interesting about this in DCC is that for it to be completely random, I, I would be okay with that. But I guess I think that's the one thing I would improve on is that I'd make sure that every class or every race, or I, I don't know if there's a word for it uh, when it when it when it said about putting them together, um, has a weakness of some sort. Mm-hmm. And I actually thought the the, silk, the the iron thing was quite interesting. I was like, oh, that's, yeah. that's an interesting role play thing, perhaps. But maybe uh, the dwarves are sensitive to sunlight, or uh, mm-hmm. halflings have um, some other sort of environmental thing. And the same with the clerics and stuff like that. I just, I just for mm-hmm. me, I was like, I'd like to see a weakness with every occupation we'll say because obviously like they said it puts it together and i wouldn't have a problem with it but that's the only thing with the elves thing. i thought that's really interesting but that's the only one that has but maybe you're right because obviously elves can do a lot more maybe it's like oh here's the balance is that if they couldn't come into contact with iron like like vampires or anything like that then they will get some damage for it and you have to mm-hmm. role play that so i don't know i think the only other thing that came up for me in that sort of sense is looking at the abilities of the classes and the thief class gets to do a lot <laughs> like mm-hmm. there's like a lot for them to do and it just i i think i've looked like over like five or six abilities but they're all like you know sneaking lock picking mm-hmm. or you know backstab all that sort of thing so all sneaky sneaky stuff mm-hmm. and maybe maybe it's because with the other classes you have like um obviously randomly generated spells so you don't need to describe it as much but i just thought like it just seemed a shame like you had this sort of thief stuff but then maybe halflings could get could see in the dark and had luck like extra luck mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And that was kind of it. So that was, that was the only thing for me. It was just like, it did feel to me there was some classes had a lot more stuff, but maybe that yeah. was just the way it sort of balances out. I'm not, I wasn't sure from my first read through of it. Yeah. I think that does go back to um, like the old school Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons, which was definitely not balanced. Um, <laughs> and I think with thieves, you know, the classic thief class, we call them, they started calling them rogues third edition mm-hmm. the classic thief class was the jack of all trades they were the skill class the idea yes. was you know your warriors they could bash things your wizards can cast spells your clerics can heal and your thieves can do stuff right that was they had uh skills back in the days when skills were in a uh, standard part of the game mm-hmm. uh, you know you didn't have proficiencies as such so yeah, they were terrible in combat thieves, completely useless. The original thief class, you had a D4 hit points, which made you... Oh, what? Um, <laughs> so that was your 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 hit dice. Every every level was D4. That's so you were as... Which was the same with wizards. Um, yes. So you were very, very, very fragile. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had to more or less avoid combat. The original AD&D as well was very strict on thieves' weapons. And... Mm. You only had, uh, you could basically carry a sword or a dagger or, uh, and I think that was about it. Uh, you couldn't, you couldn't even carry a bow. People don't know this. You could, oh. as a thief, you weren't even allowed to have a bow wow. uh, or a crossbow in the original AD&D, which pretty much meant that the only thing you could do in combat was try to sneak up on people and backstab and stab them. them. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, and so I think this DCC RPG does throw back to, uh, mm-hmm. to those old, the old way of the thief being mm. the primary skills character. So, yeah. And I will say as well, cause it talks about alignment as well. And like, it's, I think it was just, uh, 
determine your uh, or choose your alignment and you've got lawful neutral or chaotic there's no good or evil per se but certainly looking at mm. uh in a quick start guide i'm sure it's diff- slightly different in the full one but it's like table one seven skills feeds by level and alignment so if you're a chaotic feet mm-hmm. you you know as you go up the levels you get more and more powerful that sort of because i guess that's just again role-playing wise whereas obviously if you're lawful it's not as powerful and neutral you know it's, certain skills are more powerful than others so that was i mm-hmm. thought that was quite interesting i hadn't considered alignment having an effect like a a, a modifier on that per se and i think that's i i believe it's something you can choose rather than roll it, for it it is it is something you can choose yes. uh, and i i agree with you um it's a really interesting way to take the thief class in a new direction. Mm. And all the classes do little things that make them a little bit more interesting. The fighter or the warrior class, for instance, uh, has something called Mighty Deeds of Arms. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's pretty, like, it's meant to be quite loose um, by design, but it basically means that when you, when the warrior makes an attack roll they also roll a second die and whichever die that is is determined by their level mm-hmm. and we'll talk about i want to come back to uh the dice chain in a yes. minute yeah. so hold that thought i will asterisk here <laughs> but the warrior then rolls that die and depend as long as he rolls a three or higher basically mm-hmm. uh he gets to do some flavorful action along yes. with his attack and there is there are tables for that that if you if you wanted to refer to a rule the rule book for what your mighty deed of action is you can go to a section in the book on that or you could just be creative with it mm. so you say my warrior is going to you know strike the orc and then he's going to leap onto the chandelier and swing across the room and try to land on the wizard mm-hmm. and so you roll your attack die and you roll at the same time you roll your your deed die and if you get a three you succeed to some extent on your um your mighty deed of action now i say that but in dungeon crawl classics rpg the dice start at d2 so there's a dice chain i want to talk more about polyhedrals but I just want to say there are D2s used in this game. There are D3s used in this game. Of course, there are D4. There's D5, mm-hmm. D6, D7. What the heck? Oh. D8. There's no D9. No. Nobody figured that one out yet. Uh, D10. And then there's D14, D16, D24, D30, obviously D100. Mm-hmm. And basically any kind of polyhedral die that science is able to create mm-hmm. have been introduced to this game. So when you make that mighty deed of action we were talking about a moment mm-hmm. ago, um, you might be making that roll with a D3. Mm-hmm. Um, so you only have one in three chances of, of achieving it. Mm-hmm. But as you go up in levels, that die increases, which means that your mighty deed of action has a better chance of happening. Yeah. Um, and if you're a good game master in this, you will have different levels of success based on how high the role is and again that that's kind of made out in the book but it's still left a bit vague because they really wanted players who play warriors to be creative with Mm. their actions Mm. um which is interesting as well you know the warrior 
often, or the fighter class is often the class that people fall back on if they're not really that interested in role playing and all that sort of thing. They just want to like smash things. But this kind of encourages them to think outside the box and and engage in combat in a different way and, and use their imagination a little bit more. So I really like that. Um, and it also prevents the game from kind of settling into sort of rote actions. You know, in, in fifth edition, as a fighter, you know, as you get into your, uh, your 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 higher levels, you have certain powers, and you tend to use the exact same powers in the exact same order in every combat. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't, and situationally, it doesn't, there's very little influence. You know, you might use your battle master skills to do the same thing all the time. So this kind of encourages you to think about the environment you're in yeah. and how you, and how you use that from a storytelling perspective. Yeah. And it also means you can do crazy things. You know, you might very, have a very, very, very successful attack, which, you know, you, you kill the main baddie or knock out the main baddie on your first attack because you get lucky. That's possible. And I like that. Yeah, no, I, yeah, reading this idea of a deed, and like you said, it is purely uh, flavor, but combat related so that you don't increase your damage, but like it is like you say, you, you're pushing an enemy back, you're tripping them, or you're moving, you know, something like that. And it's so cool to think that actually, it's like, again, it feels random. That whole, all ideas, like here's the situation, you go, okay, well, I'm going to do this. And it's just happened, it's just, it's an extension of your, your action. And yeah, dwarves get it as well. And I just think that it's just a, it's just a really interesting thing because, yeah, like you said, I, I, I agree that like, this idea of um, people falling back on, oh, hack and slash, you know, constantly because they're not either their environment hasn't been described as well as it could be or you just you're not sure. So you just I'll just go fetch this. I think this just, yeah, like you said, encourages people to think outside the box. And also I think encourages GMs to constantly describe uh, what is going on and I, and that's i think that's a very key thing certainly in combat like we can rely on maps and we can rely on minis as much as we want but ultimately to get across in theater of the mind and to describe things as simply as possible and say like this is this is the state of play and doing it at the beginning of everybody's turn just be like hey this is happening you've got people here here and here but there's also this environment and having people ask questions about it i'm always a fan of people asking me clarify questions i don't find that's irritating at all i think that's like cool i've not described it properly i'll go into a bit more detail and me saying that re-emphasizing that other players can also hear it as well they go ah okay i can do this on my turn as well so yeah i think that mighty deeds of arms is just a really interesting uh mechanic available to warriors and dwarves and yeah i really like that as a as a as a thing that they can do i think it's really Mm -hmm. cool we're gonna go back to that asterisk now the footnote uh, and talk about the dice because as i said there's all it uses uh all these different dice uh and uh, to me this is one of the ways that dcc rpg most points back to the joy of the game in the olden days going back to those 1980s when i picked up dungeons and dragons for the first time bringing this whole thing full circle i can't tell you how amazed i was at the age of eight or nine when I was playing Dungeons and Dragons and I opened up that box and I saw a D20 for the first time, mm. or I saw the D8 or the D10. And I just thought, wow, because I'd only ever seen, you know, cube yes, D6s in my life. And it was part of the magic of the game for me, um, mm. of, of the discovery. And then wanting to 
own as many dice as I could. Oh, yeah. came <laughs> this, this fascination. And now it's kind of like the standard array of polyhedrals have become quite commonplace mm-hmm. over time. Now, like people aren't really that impressed with a D20, you know, even mm-hmm. if it's, you're seeing it for the first time somewhere, you've seen that before mm-hmm. uh, some, somehow, but like, but DCC RPG, I think they, they wanted to tap into that old, that excitement about these mm-hmm. strange, mysterious dice. Uh, and that I think is why they introduced um, some of these more rare dice Mm-hmm. They refer to as Zachi dice because there's a, a dice maker named, um, I don't know his first name, but a, a Mr. Zachi, who was one of the earliest uh, manufacturers of polyhedral dice. And he invented these other uh, quite bizarre looking dice for, yeah. for odd numbered dice. You're starting to see them, but they're still pretty rare. Mm. and uh like the d5 is a very strange looking die i'm not sure i trust it yeah uh, he swears by it he says he's, he's tested it that it gives accurate results but it looks quite strange mm. but just the idea of then you have to go look for these interesting new dice i find that <laughs> that that taps into a childhood joy mm. for me finding these new dice and I, when i see a strange die somewhere at a convention or something. I get so excited. I might, I can use this for Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. Like there is something about, I'm always a big fan. Like I'm sure you're like myself, where I've got various, I I pointed to them just then. I have various different sets of dice as the, as you said, the traditional just polyhedric set. But I think what I find interesting is that it does say, obviously, if you don't have these dice, this is how you work out what, that mm-hmm. number is so obviously for a d3 you just roll a d6 and then half the number mm-hmm. rounding down and stuff like that so th- there is a way to do it and obviously now we have obviously online dice rolls of, but I, you and i are going to both feel like it's not the same which i appreciate it's a very <laughs> old person way of saying that but i think they are fascinating to the idea that, that you said like odd number dice are having a d5 or a d7 it's just really interesting because you're like how does that work out and stuff like that so i guess can you describe to me and and the listeners as well how does the dice chain works because obviously we've talked a lot about Mm -hmm. the d20 that you use that for pretty much everything so in what circumstances would you use the other dice then right so the d20 is still the primary die for dungeon crawl classics rpgs but there are situations where instead of rolling a d20 to do perform an action, you might roll a die that is uh, one step higher or one step lower on the dice chain, mm. or maybe several steps either way. So to give you an example, the warrior that we were just talking about, as they go up in levels, instead of rolling a d20 for their attack roll, they start to be able to roll a d24. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they get high enough level, they might roll a D30. I, I can't remember offhand. I've certainly never played a warrior of that level. Mm-hmm. But also, they get second attacks eventually. And when they get a second attack, their their weaker arm rolls a lower die. Mm-hmm. Um, so they might roll the D14 or the D16, and it goes up and up depending on their level. So it gives you a range. Uh, Obviously, armor class works just like traditional Dungeons and Dragons. So you have to achieve the armor class to have an effective hit, but it's harder, obviously, if you're rolling a D16 than it is to roll a D20, and it's easier Mm -hmm. to roll on a D24 to hit, right? So what it does is it it replaces all of those annoying modifiers Mm. 
with dice rolls, Mm -hmm. which I just, to me is just funner. Like, it's just more fun to roll a die and take the result as it's rolled than it is to roll a die. And then, oh, I have that plus two and plus six and plus mm-hmm. three for all this. Like, look, looking over your character sheet to make sure you haven't missed any adjustments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Instead, you're just rolling a die. And it's the dice get bigger and stronger as your characters get bigger and stronger mm-hmm. or they get weaker. So the game has very basic, skills i'm talking not about attributes but i'm talking about proficiencies as you might call them in in fifth edition um there's literally one page about skills in this book right Uh, (laughs) right and it's just kind of you make it up it's like if your occupation was gong farmer then you're good at maybe digging ditches shoveling (laughs) you know where whereas if you're a, a scribe you might have some language skills that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um and you just have to make the argument to your game master that i'm skilled in this and your game master might say uh i don't think you are actually i don't i don't think you're a learned gong farmer you're not (laughs) going to be able to translate ancient thulian but you can still make the skill check but Mm -hmm. instead of rolling a d20 you roll a d10 Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so a skilled person rolls a d20 an unskilled person rolls a d10 um, and that saves you from having to manage all these uh, pluses and minuses, which mm-hmm. sometimes just get a bit annoying, I think. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see, like, it definitely simplifies it down. And that, this idea again about it is random because you could have the best dice in the world, like, you know, like you said, a D24, you, you know, D30, that's the thing for your character, but then you could roll really poorly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, Again, this idea of random, overcomplicated stuff that like you do these dice. And it might seem when you're reading this, like it, it, there is a lot to take in, but I would feel comfortable having like the tables with me. I think all the players would probably have tables and their own different tables as well, because mm-hmm. each character has different things. And that's okay, because obviously you're not expected to know all this in your head. And no. especially, and you simplifies it down in other ways as well, because obviously there's no, um, no attacks of opportunity, there's no feats, and as you said, no skill points as well. So that's like, you don't need to worry about these things. It is simply like, you can do an action and move, and you can do maybe a few other things depending on your character. And here they are in a very nice summary way of doing it. So yeah, I think it's it's very interesting in a very different way to play it. And so if I can imagine players being a bit worried maybe to begin with, because like, oh, there's so much, always different dice stuff. But once you got this idea of the chain, effect like you said like hey you you're now a level higher so you go to to one higher and you're a deep thing and just being that confident gm saying like just follow the dice chain here are the simplest rules for it and going from there i think it is a completely different way to play and i just really mm-hmm. it's just there's something exciting about it going hmm, how can i put this in this idea of like oh you've hurt your your main arm um we're going to move you down to a d d12 even in a D fifth edition scenario because again some of these dice don't get don't get as much love as they do like, no, I'm, I'm, i love I'm, the d12 I know, the d12 people. is the most uh you know unloved die isn't yes. it they barely ever use it but i love yeah, it it's out, a beautiful out of that, die out of that traditional polyhedral set yeah that's why i'm a big fan of barbarians because they get to use d12s and i'm like yeah that, that get get use of that d12 out but yeah it's a very interesting thing and yeah i'm gonna have to look for some of these these are, how did you, what did you call them? The zucchini? No, that's Zachi dice. Z-O-C-C-H-I. It's, it's mentioned in, in the, uh, in the, book, uh, the yeah. introduction to the book. There's a series of, of um, it's kind of a, a statement of intent. You're supposed to read it first. And if you don't agree with all of the 
ambitions of the text, then you should put this book down now and uh, and uh, find a different game. Yeah. But it does say, you know the works of the great mage Zachi and are prepared to exercise D3, D5, D7, D14, D16, D24, D30, and so on. And should should they need to be deployed? Um, <laughs> but again, he I think Zachi was one of the um, original founders of TSR, which was the original company that made Dungeons and Dragons before Wizards of the Coast bought them in the uh, early aughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think he was he was very uh, key to the foundation of Dungeons and Dragons, and he eventually went on to have his own game shop and and develop mm-hmm. dice and and because these dice were quite rare yeah. uh, back then, back in back in the old days. So I think he kind of went into business of of being the man with the dice. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, Craig, we've come to the end of chatting about DCC. Is there anything you want to, uh, like, as a, almost like a, a take-home message or one last thing that's like, hey, why should people want to play DCC? What What is it that is sort of the big selling point you want people to take away from this episode? Oh, gosh. I think that it's a refreshingly different take on fantasy role-playing mm-hmm. that still has familiar callbacks to... Uh, both old school and modern Dungeons and Dragons. Um, And I think it just brings, I've said this a few times today, but I'm going to repeat it. It brings the mystery back to fantasy. Sure, if you want to play the superheroes, fifth edition is going to be your thing. But if you want to try being the the anti-heroes, the the ordinary folks who maybe uh, make good, to be a, a reaver, or a, a cut purse, or a scoundrel, or a tomb robber, this this is a system to give a go. And at very least, uh, have a leaf through it someday, and maybe find some ideas that uh, that you might uh, use to improve your own game. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Craig, is there anything you want to plug any of your own work, even if it's something like, oh, I saw this on TV or I read this book recently. I really enjoy it. Where, What projects have you got coming up or what things do you want to promote? Well, I'm not um, actively promoting anything myself. I'm just a, a game master uh, in, and I'd love to play with uh, more people and get to know uh, more members of the community. So I'm not actively promoting anything myself, but there is one thing that I I would recommend is uh, Questing Time, which is a event which happens, I think, monthly. uh, And it's a a group of improv comedians Mm -hmm. uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons in in a club in central London. For those of you who are local, it's always great fun and uh they're full of ideas and, and you can uh, really be entertained watching a group of people uh, who are endlessly clever, having a great time playing Dungeons and Dragons. I can definitely second that as well. I I'm, I, I didn't realize we were back in person. That's amazing. Cause uh, yeah, I used to go to a couple of the, a couple of their shows uh, pre pandemic. They've also been doing stuff on Twitch as well. So you can look up that, uh, I think weekly they've been doing it on Twitch um, and the DM mm-hmm. Paul Foxcroft as well. Amazing DM. He's done stuff for, um, if you probably, you probably heard the name when he's done comic relief does D and D. Uh, he did all that uh, for that as well. Really, really interesting. Um, and he's actually 
has been doing some of the D&D celebrations, I think, in the past as well, when he's run for, for games and stuff in person. So highly recommend checking his stuff out as well. Really, really good. And definitely supporting other tired GMs and DMs <laughs> having to deal with the antics of their players. So, yeah, yeah. I completely second that one as well. Um, yeah, I just guess I'll quickly sign off because uh, I do have stuff to plug because uh, I'm very busy. Uh, so my name is Fiona. I run the What Am I Rolling podcast, which is a twice monthly RPG one shot podcast. As always, it's going very well. Um, obviously, we cover a wide range of other RPG systems. And I think at some point DCC will definitely come up now because, like, again, this idea of randomness sounds really cool. Coming up, we've got uh, Vert, the sci-fi RPG system, which is based on the original book, but also uses the Cypher system, which is a brand new sort of system to me, at least. Uh, really, really interesting. And I'm sure there's other bits and pieces coming up as well. I always forget when I get to this point, because again, it's that idea of like, is it in the future? Is it in the past? I never, I never remember when these episodes go out myself. Also, season three of the DMs Book Club is being streamed exclusively on Dragon's Jewel Twitch. Obviously, we have now collaborated with Dragon's Jewel. We've got Hamilton as our regular guest host now. We'll be uh, sending out episodes Thursdays at 9pm BST slash GMT on the Dragon Jewels Twitch. That's uh, Dragons underscore Jewel, if you look for us on Twitch. And finally, we have an offer code. 10% off your first purchase from Third Space Gaming, your friendly local game store in Burnley, which is where I'm originally from. Uh, you should just type in the offer code DMBC into checkout. You get 10% off and it can be on anything you want. It could be it could be DCC. I'm sure they'll have copies of it there uh, or Terrain or Wargaming. Whatever you want, you get 10% off. Craig, it was absolutely wonderful talking to you. And uh, the listeners out there, I'm sure you can find out more about stuff in the next episode, which we'll probably be playing right now. I don't know. <laughs> uh, thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you very much. 